to the AK-47 podcast. That's 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kolontai. My name is Kristen Godsey. I'm a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania. I am going to continue today with the short story that I started reading last year in my last episode called The Loves of Three Generations. And so if you haven't listened to that first episode, please do. Just a quick recap. This is a piece of fiction that Kolontai wrote, and the protagonist, who is presumably Kolontai, is reading a letter from a comrade, uh, a woman named Olga Sergeyevna, who is having a bit of a love drama in her life. And she writes this very long letter to Kolontai in order to ask Kolontai's advice about whether her personal feelings of indignation and betrayal are just vestiges of bourgeois mentality or with or whether they're somehow justified by the situation that she finds herself in. Where we left off is the letter writer is actually telling a story about her mother and the way that she was raised and the circumstances of her own uh, situation uh, that leads up as necessary background, she says, to the situation that she finds herself in today. Okay, so this is the continuation part two of The Loves of Three Generations. As soon as she was established in the home of Sergei Ivanovich, mother at once set about the realization of her dream of establishing public libraries, enthusiastically supported by my father, the Chekhovian hero. At that time, Russia was suffering a period of blackest reaction, but mother battled for her idea with her usual persistence, taking it from the district magistrate to governor, traveling to Petersburg, using her personal influence wherever she could, stubbornly refusing to accept defeat. And then, just as their plan approached realization, my mother and her muddle-headed, terror-stricken husband were arrested and exiled to a far distant region. There, I was born. Even in exile, mother continued her energetic activity, she called into being an organization for self-culture, laid the foundation for a system of libraries, taught, instructed. My father was unhappy, became stout, and deteriorated mentally as well as physically. Nevertheless, when he returned from his exile at last, the reputation as a staunch revolutionist had preceded him, and he took up his activity in the provinces. Mother applied herself to her work for popular education with renewed enthusiasm. It seemed that the life of my parents had assumed a fixed and permanent form at last, until one day, Mother discovered her almost bald but still handsome husband in an unmistakably compromising situation with the milkmaid, Arisha. My father tried to defend himself, but the situation was more complicated than he assumed. Arisha became pregnant. Without further ado, mother packed her belongings and left with me for the capital city of the province, leaving my father a letter in which she insisted on adequate provision for Arisha's child and warned him against alcohol, which was taking an increasingly strong hold on his tastes. She carefully avoided complaints or recriminations. All this I learned years later from mother herself when she told me the story of her own life in the hope of influencing my decision to bring me back to what she considered the only honorable path. I remember that mother bore her fate with admirable strength. 
I never saw her shed a tear, although she never ceased loving Sergei Ivanovich and remained faithful to him the rest of her life. In the capital, my mother set to work to organize the publication of a series of books on popular science, a work that has given her lasting fame throughout the country. I lived with her. From my earliest youth, I was familiar with the thought and activity of revolutionary circles. Forbidden literature was the reading matter of my early teens. I was at home with illegality and with those who lived illegally. We lived frugally, almost ascetically, in a home always permeated with an atmosphere of industry and hard work, among ideals and new beginnings. At the age of 16, I was arrested for the first time and my mother was inordinately proud of me. Such were my early surroundings. But even at this early age, my opinions began to diverge from those of my mother. I inclined strongly towards Marxism. She remained with the Narodniki. In my work among the revolutionists, I had made the acquaintance of a prominent member of the fighting organization. He was considerably my senior and had a past. Mother shook her head disapprovingly, considered me entirely too young to know my own mind, thought I might have waited, feared that I had inherited my father's lightness in love affairs, and finally acquiesced. We lived with mother and each of us continued his work. We did not marry, however, because we were fundamentally opposed to marriage as an institution. My husband was illegal, and it was not long before we were placed under arrest. Influential friends managed to obtain mother's liberation. I went into exile with my husband. I fear this long introduction will bore you, but you will not understand what I am suffering without it. I want you to understand and not to forget this one fact, that I am the daughter and pupil of Maria Stepanovna. The ideas one absorbs in childhood cannot be driven out by mere logic. Be patient, therefore, I beg you, and continue to read this long letter. I am coming now to the tragedy of the second generation. I managed to escape from exile. My husband remained. I came to Petersburg where, in order to cover my tracks, I was installed by friends as a private instructress in the home of a wealthy engineer, M, who had been in more or less close touch with the Marxist movement since his student days. In this luxurious home, every member of the family lived according to his own desires and inclinations. On the whole, they were no more interested in political issues than in the current production at the art theater. Politics to them was an interesting subject for drawing room discussion, nothing more. I had never come in contact with this atmosphere before. It was strange and inwardly repulsive to me. On the first evening of my stay there, I was plunged into a heated argument with my employer. The tone I used, I discovered later, was far from conforming with the accepted standards of polite salon conversation. I believe we spoke of Bernstein. Anger and shame at my lack of self-control kept me awake the better part of the night. For some reason, I particularly resented the flatteringly mocking look that Engineer M turned upon me when I raged at him. There was something about this man that was strangely exciting. Superficial and uncongenial as his nature undoubtedly was, there was a fascination about him that drove me to seek his nearness again and again. I tried desperately to force him to admit the correctness of my point of view, to persuade him to adopt our principles. His wife, a fragile doll in laces and furs, the mother of five strong, healthy children, looked up to her husband in frank idolatry. 
Against all the rules of the game of marriage, she would often laughingly assure us she was falling more and more deeply in love with her husband the longer she lived with him. This smugness, this it seemed to me pompously displayed family felicity infuriated me. The husband's unwavering devotion to his attractive wife, his eternal solicitude for her health irritated me to the verge of malice. I would purposely say humiliating, insulting things about the superficiality of liberalism. I scoffed at the sated happiness of the bourgeoisie and the triviality of its existence. More than once, I reduced the charming, impressionable little Lydia Andreevna to hysterical tears by a recital of episodes I had seen and experienced. Why do you do that? The engineer would ask me reproachfully, but the look in his eyes was admiring. My hatred for them both tempted me strongly to commit indiscretions, if only to jolt them out of their placid acceptance of life by bringing down the police upon their unsuspecting heads. I wanted to leave them, but that was out of the question. Their home was not only a refuge for me, it offered a convenient meeting place in which I could keep close touch with the work of my comrades. These protested indignantly at the suggestion that I seek another hiding place and demanded reasons. Why do you associate with them? My friends wanted to know when I tried to explain. Stay away from them. But that was out of the question. I seemed to be under the spell of a consuming hatred for the smug, handsome figure of my employer with his rasping voice and his careless walk. I fell into agonies of nervousness when for several days I did not see him. The slightest inattention on his part caused me indescribable anguish. Yet we quarreled whenever we met, argued until we were hoarse, and descended into harsh, unkind remarks. To the outsider, our ineradicable hatred for one another must have been apparent. But in the midst of these quarrels, our eyes would meet in a language of their own, a language that neither of us dared to interpret or understand. On one occasion, party matters detained me in the suburbs longer than I expected. When I returned late that night, it was M himself who opened the door for me. Ah, so you have come back. I had already given up all hope. And before I knew what had happened, I lay in his arms under a torrent of wild kisses. Strangely, I was not surprised at the turn our relations had taken. It was as if I had been expecting this to happen long ago. When the morning dawned, I crept into my room while he remained in the study that often served him as a bedroom when work detained him downstairs later than usual. On the following evening, in the presence of others, we argued as vehemently as only implacable antagonists can argue for their deep-rooted convictions. After the guests had left, M invited me to drive with him to the Islands, a popular Petersburg amusement resort. It was in the spring, the season of the white nights. His wife insisted on my going. The idea seemed to amuse her. It never occurred to her to look upon me as a possible rival in his affections. And so the knot of my life was tied. It was a time of great difficulty for the party and I was deeply engrossed in work and responsibilities. I lived blindly from day to day, putting off the final decision as to my future course again and again, exonerating myself in my own eyes by pleading lack of time. Mrs. M was preparing to leave for the South with her children. 
Perhaps you will find it hard to believe that I thought of my husband with the deepest tenderness and longing during these feverish weeks, that I was moving heaven and earth to effect his release. Had I been asked at the time whom I loved, I would have answered without a moment's hesitation, my husband, my friend. But had I been asked to leave M, I should have preferred to die. He was a stranger to me and yet so inexpressibly close. I detested his glances, his habits, his modes of life, and yet I loved him with all his weaknesses and follies, in spite of the fact that he lacked every quality that I loved and venerated in man. Neither he nor I were happy in our love, yet neither of us could entertain the idea of separation without pain. I could not understand, I still do not understand, what it was that attracted him to me. At the time, I had little charm. I did not know how to dress. I was not even interested in clothes. My behavior was harsh and unwomanly. Still, M loved me, loved me as he had never loved his idolized wife. During that entire summer, we remained in that deserted house together, a distressing summer full of contradictions in our feelings for one another. Neither of us found happiness, nor did we attempt to hide our dissatisfaction. Can you understand when I tell you that this very unhappiness brought us nearer to each other than anything else in our peculiar relationship? In the early fall, I became pregnant. An abortion? Neither he nor I could bear the thought. I went to my mother. And now we have a pause, and this is Kolontai's Reflections. Here, Olga Sergeyevna's letter came to an abrupt stop. It had evidently been written under extreme nervous tension with frequent interruptions. On official paper, she continued with hastily penciled lines. Now this is back to the letter. I told my mother everything. I tried to make her see the discord within me, the conflicts between us, tried to make her understand something of what I was suffering, that I loved my husband and that M too loved us both, his wife and me. My mother listened to me in silence and sat in her bedroom long afterward, thoughtfully studying her cigarette. The next morning she came to my room, sat down on the edge of my bed and declared categorically, it is quite plain that you love this M. You must write to Constantine at once. But what shall I write? That you love another, of course. You must leave him no illusions on that score. Believe me, my daughter, pity is misplaced in a situation of this kind. It only means added anguish. But I do not pity Constantine. I love him. I have never ceased loving him. If that is so, how could you have fallen in love with another, my mother demanded. You are talking utter nonsense. It is not nonsense, mother. That is the tragedy of it. The more I tried to make my mother understand that it was possible for two such passions to exist side by side, deep tenderness, affection, and a consciousness of absolute spiritual accord with Constantine on the one hand, and on the other, the stormy desire for M, whom as a human being, I neither loved nor respected, the less I succeeded. She could not grasp it. If it is only physical desire that you feel for M, you should control yourself. Surely you love Constantine enough to leave this man if that is the case. Mother, you do not understand. It is more than desire. It is love, a different sort of love from what I feel for Constantine. If I knew that M were in danger, I would give my life to save him. If I were asked to give up my life for Constantine, I could not do it. 
Still, I love Constantine. I love him. I need him. My soul needs him. Life is cold and empty without him. In that sense, I neither love nor respect M. This is sheer madness, my mother protested irritably. But she was at a loss to proceed. She, too, had become confused and uncertain, demanding that I write to Constantine at once that I leave him and go to the father of my child, only to insist a few hours later that I break off this unholy relationship with M. For the first time in my life, mother and I did not understand each other. It had been a mistake to seek help from her. She insisted on a decision. I must go to one or the other of the men I loved. But I wanted them both, M as well as Constantine. To me, this seemed more human, more correct, and more in harmony with the spiritual value of the situation as I saw it. In the end, I wrote to Constantine and told him of what happened. Not only the facts, of course, but of the conflicts that were raging in my heart and the doubts that were racking my soul. At first, I received only a brief reply. He would think it over and would try to adjust himself to the new situation. He would write soon. But the few lines were so full of warm affection that I told myself at once, Constantine is not like mother. He will understand. So I'm going to stop reading right there for this episode. And I'll come back to the story in the next episode and possibly another episode after that because it's going to take a few more episodes, I think, to finish this story. This is Kristen Godsey with the AK-47 podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Happy New Year and keep up the good fight. So thank you so much for listening. This is Kristen Godsey with the AK-47 podcast, and it is 2020, so Happy New Year and keep up the good fight.